It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 212, like the boiling point of water. For October 3rd, 2010, recorded September 30th, 2010. In the new version of Lightroom, Adobe's developers have taken all of Lightroom 2's best features and either kept them or improved them. Then they found Lightroom 2's few weaknesses and banished them. The result is probably a photographer's best friend. Lightroom 3 is an application that not only is powerful, but also easy to use. It's an outstanding workflow organizer, and it also prevents photographers from committing errors that could damage or destroy their images. Let me tell you about it. Let's start today by importing some images. Lightroom 3 makes importing photographs a lot clearer and easier than it was in Lightroom 2. Keep in mind, you don't want to move images outside of Lightroom. You can easily relink the images, but it's better not to create this problem for yourself by simply following Lightroom's three-step workflow. Decide where the images are. That's usually pretty easy. They're on your camera or they're on a disk drive somewhere. How do you want to bring them into Lightroom? What format? And where do you want to put them? If you allowed Lightroom to set up things automatically, it will launch whenever you plug in a digital camera or a memory card. So step one is really already taken care of. The second step is deciding how you want to import the images. I shoot in RAW mode, so I have a choice of importing the RAW images or converting them to Adobe's digital negative format, DNG. Both formats contain the same amount of information, and there are good reasons for choosing either one or the other. So you'll just have to figure that out for yourself. If the files you're adding to Lightroom also exist on the hard drive, you'll have the additional options of moving or copying. So that takes care of step two. Step three is a little more complex because there are several sub-steps. You can just specify a directory, but you may also want to import a second copy to another location, or rename the files while you're importing them, or apply some special, specific development settings, or add keywords, or modify the image's metadata. You can, of course, just select the import directory and start the process and do all those other things later. Once you've made those decisions and imported your images, they are now in Lightroom. And there's one important thing to remember, as I said earlier, don't move the images using Windows Explorer or the Mac Finder because Lightroom can't track changes that it doesn't make. If you create this problem for yourself, it's easy enough to relink the files as long as you remember where you put them. But it's even easier not to move the files outside of Lightroom, not to create that problem for yourself. Library mode is the next stop on this tour. This is where you'll make the first round of edits. The secret to being known as a good photographer is knowing what to discard. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll see that I went to Waterfire recently, and I came back with 103 images. After the first cut, I had narrowed the likely suspects down to 32. This is knowing what to discard. The Navigator panel can be used to zoom in on any part of an image. This area is then shown in the larger display window of Lightroom. 
One of the things I noticed when I did that was that the sharpness of the telephoto lens I was using left quite a bit to be desired. We'll talk later about how Lightroom can help make up for the faults of what is really a substandard lens. During this process, you can use the quick develop tools to make some overall changes to the white balance, which is the temperature or tint of the image, to the tone of the image, which I would define as exposure, clarity, and vibrance, to keywords or to metadata. Changes made here can be applied to more than one image at a time, unlike in the develop mode, which concentrates on a single image at a time. When you return from an event such as water fire, you'll probably find that a lot of images were taken under similar circumstances. A group exposed outside in midday sunlight, a group exposed in late afternoon light, some inside at night with a flash. Selecting all of the images from each group and pre-processing them by applying some basic modifications will save you a lot of time later. The next step for this Lightroom bus is the develop mode. And this is where you'll have the greatest amount of control over images. And despite all of the power tools lying around, there is virtually no danger of harming even a single pixel of any image. The changes you make essentially record a list of instructions for how Lightroom displays and exports the image. So you can always get back to your original, unmodified image. Most people, when they're working with photographs, make one of two mistakes. They either modify the original by cropping it, changing the color, applying effects, converting it to black and white, enlarging it, reducing it, or something like that. And when they realize that they still need the uncropped image without the effects in color at the original size, well, they're out of luck. The image is gone. Or they make copy after copy of the image as they apply different effects to it, and their hard drive is cluttered with dozens of copies. Really, I've seen this happen. Lightroom eliminates both of these problems because you can always revert the image to its original size, shape, and color. If you need multiple copies of an image, you can create a virtual copy. There's still just one file on the disk, but Lightroom keeps two or three or more description files for modifications. Let's try changing an image. Check out the TechFinder Worldwide website, and I'll walk you through modifying an image. You'll find one that's the result of modifying an image that was too dark, too contrasty, and crooked. To see the original image after making the corrections while keeping my changes, I simply created a virtual copy. Then I reset the image to return it to its original state. My original image didn't have a lot to recommend it, but I thought perhaps I could improve it. So I rotated it a bit. There's still a slight keystone effect. If you look closely, you'll see that buildings still lean just slightly. The Levesque Tower in this image appears nearly straight, and the State Office Tower is pretty good, too. Overall, it's acceptable, but it's still far too dark in the foreground. And this was a late afternoon image, so the color should have been more rose-like. I used the temperature and tint controls to fix the color of the light, added some fill light to open up the shadows in the foreground. That washed out the colors, so I increased the black level a bit, pushed the vibrance to make the colors pop. These are the most used controls, and that's why Adobe placed them at the top of the stack. Well, then it was time to address problems created by the marginal telephoto lens on the camera. Again, if you take a look at what's on the TechBinder Worldwide website, you'll see how mushy the edges of the buildings are. I knew I should have bought a better lens, not tried to get by with that cheap Tamron lens. 
Well, I pushed the clarity setting almost to the max, and now there's some definition around the state office building's windows. Then I thought it might be a good idea to use a graduated neutral density filter on the sky. This darkens the sky quite a bit at the top, and the effect is reduced as it approaches the skyline. After creating yet another virtual copy, I now have three images, the original, my first set of modifications, and the changes that I'm describing on the TechBiter Worldwide website. But there's still only one photo on the hard drive. But I can output these as three discrete images if I want to share them. And you'll find those on the TechBiter Worldwide website, too. Number one, the foreground of the original image, clearly too dark. This was the result of the camera's sensor reading the specular highlight from the sun and adjusting the image accordingly. Uh, And by the way, it's also crooked. Number two, this time we have detail in the foreground and the buildings are more or less straight. The color of the light is more accurate for late afternoon, what photographers call the golden hour. And overall, it's a much better image than number one. Image number three is yet another interpretation of the same image. It's somewhat more golden. The clarity has been boosted, contrast a bit higher. And there's that neutral density filter I mentioned, darkening the top edge of the sky. Now here's what's so good about Lightroom 3. Accomplishing this in a dark room could easily require a series of test prints and several hours of effort. With Lightroom, I accomplished the task in less than 10 minutes. Despite all its advantages, digital photography has one serious annoyance. It's called noise. Two types of noise exist. Luminance noise, which looks like white speckles in a picture, and color noise, looks like apparently random colors. The higher ISO setting you use, that's equivalent to the film speed, the higher you set that, the more noise you're going to see. Lightroom 2 was able to tame some of the noise, but Lightroom 3 improves noise reduction by what appears to be an entire order of magnitude. Let me explain that. Let's start with an image from Waterfire. I needed a moderately high shutter speed for two reasons. First, I was not using a tripod, and there were some dancers on stage, and, well, dancers move. By setting the ISO to 400, I could get a shutter speed of 150th of a second, exposing for the light on the stage. I knew I'd need to manipulate the image later because the image was really nothing to brag about. The stage was okay, but everything else was way too dark. In the final view, you'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website, the people in the foreground are visible. They're no longer just shadows. The sky has some color. The buildings across the river and the river itself all have texture. The fire on the water, hey, it's visible too. And I've tamed the noise, or more accurately, Lightroom has tamed the noise. The process, in fact, is nearly automatic. Lightroom offers sliders for luminance noise and color noise. The primary challenge to correcting either kind of noise is that the image tends to become mushy. Okay, that's a technical term for fuzzy. When you try to fix noise... Lightroom 3, though, virtually eliminates the mushiness. Check the TechBiter Worldwide website. You'll see a small section from the lower left corner of the original image. Click the link. Make sure you see the full-size view. The luminous noise would render any print made from that file mottled. The image below shows you what happens when I engage the noise reduction features from Lightroom 3. The difference is clearly visible on the TechBiter Worldwide website and would also be clearly visible on any prints 
made from those images. You know, I'm always kind of amused and somewhat disheartened when I read a letter to the editor of a photography magazine that starts by claiming that professional photographers don't use some particular new technology because they just, well, they just don't. All right, that's silly. I remember the 1960s. Professional photographers don't use auto exposure. In the 1970s and 1980s, oh, professional photographers don't use autofocus. In the 1990s, it was, oh, professional photographers don't use digital cameras. And today you hear a lot of, hey, professional photographers don't manipulate images with Photoshop. Remember MASH? Remember Colonel Potter? Bull feathers. Professional photographers use whatever they can to produce the best possible image, period. I've actually read letters from self-described purists who feel that the only right way to use a digital camera is to record JPEG images instead of RAW images and to just live with whatever you download from the camera. If you weren't good enough to obtain a perfect image, they reason, well, tough luck. Would these purists insist that Ansel Adam never use push or pull processing? That he never dodge or burn an image in the dark room? Would the bleach bypass processing technique be shunned? Well, that's probably what this crowd would have suggested in the 40s and 50s. I do not claim that I am as talented as Ansel Adams, or even close. But I do maintain that any photographer who's worthy of the name will use every means available to create the best possible images. The waterfire image that I've shown on the TechBiter Worldwide website could not be captured on film or on a digital camera without manipulation. That's because of the exposure differences between the lightest areas on the stage and the darkest areas in the crowd. These present far too much contrast for film or a digital sensor to record. The only way to obtain detail in the light areas and the dark areas is by means of manipulation in the dark room or in light room after the fact. And for that, I make no apologies. Bottom line for Lightroom 3, Lightroom 3 might not be perfect, but I really can't think of anything to complain about. I can't even begin to imagine thinking about digital photography without Lightroom at this point. Applications such as this make me wish that I had a rating scale of 10 or 100 or 1,000, because Lightroom would earn the highest possible rating regardless of the top number. Serious amateurs will be delighted. Professional photographers will immediately realize that Lightroom 3 is just what they've been wishing for. For more information, visit the Adobe Lightroom 3 website. You'll find a link to that site from the TechBiter Worldwide website. Well, I did it. I now own a Kindle. Despite the shortcomings when it comes to loading library books on the Kindle, I finally had to admit to myself that this is currently the best option for what I want to do with the device. So I've been using it for about a half month now, and I overall like what I've been able to do. On the TechBinder Worldwide website, you'll see an image of my Kindle, and if you click that to see a larger image, depending on the size and resolution of your computer's screen, you'll have about a life-size view of the Kindle. It measures a little less than five inches across, about seven and a half inches top to bottom. The screen is about three and a half by five inches. 
about the size of a small paperback book. It's, of course, thinner than most books, and it's certainly a lot lighter than, say, for example, War and Peace, which I happen to have loaded on the Kindle. It's also considerably lighter than most books that deal with computer programs, and that's what I really wanted to use it for. I've purchased a few technology-related books dealing with, for example, HTML5, CSS3, PHP, and such, but I have also downloaded a number of free publications, such as Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes stories. I've already read these stories, but I couldn't resist the opportunity to read them again, particularly for free. Many of the procedures presented to allow loading library books on the Kindle attempt to break digital rights management, or DRM, Although I consider DRM to be an abomination, I do try to honor it. I haven't yet been able to find a way to place library books on the device. DRM is short-sighted, silly, and typical of corporate policies. It simply makes reading library books on the Kindle difficult. But consider the good features. Because the Kindle uses power only when changing pages or accessing Wi-Fi or cellular connections, recharging the battery is something you need to do only occasionally. Because the device is designed to work much the way paper does, it is extremely easy to read in standard room light, outdoor, or indirect sunshine. For example, at the beach, or anywhere you'd be able to read a newspaper or book. However, it is impossible to read in a dark room, unless you turn on a light. I had hoped to be able to talk more about loading library books onto the Kindle for this report, but that process has so far turned out to have no small number of dead ends. So the bottom line, two cats for the Kindle, just two. I'd like to give the Kindle five cats, but there are simply too many disadvantages. Amazon's corporate policies are the reason that I give Kindle only two cats, even though I like the way it works. Amazon needs to understand that people don't want to be locked into a single system. Allowing users to read library books on the device isn't an impossible task. It is simply something that Amazon has decided not to allow. So I love the Kindle, but I hate the Kindle. Hello, Amazon. Do the right thing, and I'll gladly rate the Kindle 5 out of 5. For more information, visit the Kindle website at Amazon. You'll find a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website. In short circuits, do you have a Kindle yet? The Harris Polling Company says 10% of us already have an electronic book reader of some sort, and another 15% of us will buy one between now and March of next year. Remember when cell phones went from being something that only a dilettante would own to something that everybody needed? Readers seem to be on that track. Reading used to be simple. You bought a book or borrowed it from the library. Then you read the book, and when you were finished, you put it on a shelf or you returned it to the library. Well, now you can download a book and read it. In fact, you can carry dozens or even hundreds of books around with you. Deja vu. I was amazed in the 1970s to be able to carry a cassette with an hour's worth of my favorite music. Then came CDs, DVDs and devices that could hold tens of thousands of selections. The same thing is happening to books. The Harris Poll surveyed just under 3,000 online adults in early August and learned that about 40% of us read 11 or more books per year. So, wow, there is hope for the nation after all. Maybe we are literate. About 20% of us read 21 or more books a year. 
The highest numbers come from those who already own electronic readers. More than 20% of the respondents said they had not purchased any books in the past year. That's compared to only 8% of electronic reader owners. About 12% of the respondents said they had purchased more than 10 Dead Trees books in the past year. But almost 20% of the owners of electronic readers said they had purchased 11 or more books. And 12% had bought 21 or more books in the past year. Publishers really should be excited about this. Although e-books sell for far less than printed books, there's also no cost of printing or distribution. I don't remember whether it was in high school or college that I encountered the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock by T.S. Eliot. It is the only work by Eliot that I really liked or understood. I mean, the wasteland was just impossible unless you were able to read Latin. I could read Latin a little, barely, maybe, thanks to Latin in high school. But Greek? (laughs) Sorry, Charlie. Proofrock was at least accessible. It was all in English. Well, now a computer geek has written a parodied, updated version called The Doc File of J. Alfred Proofrock with deepest apologies to T.S. Eliot. The website on which I found the poem said this, This morning I was asked to change my password on my work computer, as I must do every four months, and I sat there waiting for it to authorize my new password, and I thought, I have measured out my life in login codes. And as it often does, then my brain screwed me out of several hours of productivity. (laughs) And the doc file of J. Alfred Prufrock was the result. It is amazing, it is amusing, and it is fun. You'll find the text on the TechBiter Worldwide website. But now, I'd like to read it to you. So this is the doc file of J. Alfred Prufrock, with deepest apologies to T.S. Eliot. Let us go, then, you and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky like a laptop put in sleep mode on a table. Let us go through certain half-deserted streets, the blinking light retreats of restless nights in free Wi-Fi cafes, and public libraries with Internet, streets that follow like message board argument of insidious intent to lead you to an overwhelming blog post. Oh, do not ask what yoy. Let us go and post an entry. In the room, the players come and go, talking of their scores on Halo. The yellow fog that rubs its back upon the Windows PC. The yellow smoke that rubs its muzzle on the Macintosh licked its tongue into the corners of the evening, lingered upon the trackpads in their case, let fall upon its back the crumbs that fall to keyboards, slipped by the flash drive, made a sudden leap, and seeing that it was a soft October night, curled once about the mouse, and fell asleep. And indeed there will be time, for the yellow smoke that slides along the desk, rubbing its back on the Windows PC. There will be time, there will be time, to prepare a face to meet the icons that you meet. There will be time to murder and respawn, and time for all the Chrome and Firefox that drag and drop a website on your plate. 
Time for Doc and time for PPT. And time yet for a hundred indecisions and for a hundred fanfics and revisions before taking of a toast and tea. In the room, the players come and go, talking of their scores on Halo. And indeed, there will be time to wonder, is this wanky? Is this fair? Time to turn back and descend the stair. With a comment on the level of your player, they will say how his server is lagging slow. My morning cosplay, collar mounting firmly to the chin, my website rich and modest, but accessed by a simple login. They will say, but how his content's growing thin. Do I dare disturb the interwebs? In a minute, there is time for fan fictions and revisions, which Google Docs may reverse. For I have known them all already, known them all, have known their RPs, archives, message boards. I have measured out my life with usernames. I know the voices dying with a 404 beneath the music from a farther room. So how should I presume? And I have known the mods, already known them all, the eyes that fix you in a formulated phrase. And when I am ban-hammered, sprawling on a pin, when I am banned and wriggling on the wall, then how should I begin to spit out all the fragments of my browser cache? And how should I presume? And I have known the sites already, known them all, sites that are web 2.0, white and bare, on my cell phone, still given to fail. It is the JavaScript impress that makes them so digress. Sites that stretch out like a table, or word wrap like a shawl. And should I then presume? And how should I log in? Shall I say I have gone at dusk through archived files and watched the dial-up sequences that blink no more from AOL in Lonely Windows? I should have been a line of ragged code scuttling through the compiler, breaking apps. And the message board, the website, sleeps so peacefully, soothed by long fingers, asleep, tired, or it malingers, returning 404 here in front of me. Should I, after iPhone apps and prices, have the strength to force AT&T to crisis? But though I have wept and emailed, wept and played, though I have seen my avatar brought in upon a platter, I am no hacker, and here's no great matter. I have seen the screen of my laptop flicker. I have seen the eternal blue screen hold my eye and snicker, and in short... I was afraid. And would it have been worth it, after all, after the games, social media, the blogs, among the Twitters, among the talk of IRC logs, would it have been worthwhile to have bitten off the fandom with a smile, to have squeezed the Internet into a ball, to roll it towards some ass on Yahoo questions, to say, I am Babbage, come from the dead, come back to ban you all, I shall ban you all. If one, sending a text message, autocorrected, 
should say, that is not what I typed at all. That is not it. L-O-L. And would it have been worth it after all? Would it have been worthwhile after the lolcats and the macros and the YouTube clips, after the spam bots, after the blog space, after live journal trailing on the floor and dig and so much more? It is impossible to type just what I mean. But as if a new AVI threw the nerves in patterns on the screen, would it have been worthwhile if one texting or throwing back a Red Bull and turning toward the PC should say, That is not what I typed at all. That is not it. Oh, LOL. No, I am not Lovelace, nor was I meant to be. I'm on some message board, one that will do to send things viral. Start a meme or two. Edit the wiki, no doubt an easy tool. Deferential, glad to be of use. Pawning, sometimes, but anonymous. Filled with citations, all a bit obtuse. These edits, indeed, almost ridiculous. Can you not work Google? I grow old. I grow old. I shall add some links to my blog roll. Shall I change my default pick? Do I dare to eat a peach? Shall I play some World of Warcraft and walk up on the beach? I have heard the servers singing each to each. I do not think they will sing to me. I have seen cats talking in caps lock on the web, all up in your fridge eating your food. When my laptop lights the darkness, white and black. We have lingered in the tubes of the Internet by URLs wreathed with info, loaded down, till cell phones ringing wake us, and we drown. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.